Thank you for leading us in worship, team, and for the reading of Scripture. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim. I hope you're finding this good, being together like this, because I certainly do. And I think one of the fantastic things about gathering together in worship, hearing testimony, and this time that we have right now to hear from God's Word is that we give ourselves the opportunity to really think about this most, pre- this most precious commodity that we have, and that is our very life. During the week, you know, there's so many things pulling at us, there's so much noise, so much clamoring for our attention that is temporal, but this, as we talk about and think about our relationship with God, our relationship in God, this has eternal ramifications. To give ourselves this opportunity is amazing. So how do we live it well, this life of ours? Today we're going to talk about faith, courageous faith. And I'm reminded of the verse in Hebrews chapter 11, which says this, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, certainly there is more to a life well lived before God, in God, uh, beyond faith, but it is certainly no less than faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. My guess is that in your life, there are many times when you have to face fear. My guess is in your life, there's many times when you have to go through difficult and hard circumstances. How are you going to live that? In faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Today we have the story of Nehemiah, and as we lay his story alongside our own personal stories, I believe he's going to inspire us to that kind of life, a life of courageous faith. I'm going to map it out to us in in a sequential, sort of tidy form, but we need to know as we talk about courageous faith this morning, it occurs in the messiness of life. So to review, where did we start last week? How do we, where do we find ourselves? We began in this book called Nehemiah, and it's really part of one book, Ezra, Nehemiah, but we're looking at chapters one through six in this series called Rebuild. And last week we saw how Nebuchadnezzar heard some news. But to give you some context about it, the, the people that he's part of, the Jews, they have been exiled from their homeland. Like, like many people today have been exiled out of their homeland, Syrians and others, they've been exiled out to a foreign place. So the Jews, because of their disobedience before God, had been exiled to Babylon through King Nebuchadnezzar. After a while, 70 years, according to the prophet Jeremiah, Uh, The Babylonians are defeated and Cyrus the king comes with uh, a Persian ruler and he now rules over this territory. And according to the word of Jeremiah, he begins to release the Jews back who want to go back to Jerusalem to their homeland and gives them permission to rebuild the temple there. They did that in about 536 BC. That was when it started, but it took a while, and that's a story for another day, but it wasn't until about 515 BC that they actually dedicated the temple. Where we are here with Nehemiah is about 70 years after that dedication. So a lot of time has transpired and things have happened. Ezra has gone to Jerusalem. Um, There have been other kings that have been in place. But now it's King Artaxerxes and Nehemiah. We find ourselves in that place around 545 B.C. And we saw last week that Nehemiah is a man of courageous faith. And we saw that courageous faith exhibited by him is moved by a concern for God's glory and the well-being of his people. 
In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, it says this, as soon as I heard these words, the, the words of Jerusalem, it's broken down walls and it's destroyed gates. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Nehemiah is moved by concern for God's glory and the well-being of his people. His courageous faith also prays and fasts. He says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is what we learned last week. This is a great story, and in in every great story, there's conflict, there's surprises, there's plot twists, and at the end of chapter one, Nehemiah drops this bombshell. He says, now I was the cupbearer of the king. When we hear that, we begin to understand the story gets way more intriguing, that Nehemiah is not just some uh, Jewish in a, in a, power, a powerless Jew in a suburb in Persia, but he's actually a subservient Jew in a most influential place with the king. He's a cupbearer. Today when you go to a restaurant and if a, there's a group of people there and they order a bottle of wine, typically what happens is the server will bring the bottle of wine, uncork it, have a glass, pour a little bit in the glass and then give it to the person who ordered the bottle and they'll, you know, they'll swish it around, pretend they know something about wine, sniff it, um, gurgle it around in their mouth a bit and then they always say, oh, this is great because they don't know the difference. A cupbearer would pre-taste the wine, but not so that he could let the king know if it tasted right or not, but so that the king wouldn't be poisoned. Because in those days, poison was a common axe, a common way to axe a political opponent. So that doesn't happen today. Justin Trudeau has bodyguards, but he doesn't have a cupbearer because that's not what happens. But in Nehemiah's time, if you were a ruler, there was all kinds of deceit and intrigue and murder as people clamored for power in a kingdom. A kingship is not a democracy. It's received often by power, and so suspicion is a first reflex. That's why you have a cupbearer. You put your trust in him, because he's going to taste it before you do, and you won't have to worry about being poisoned. In that trusted position, historical records show that a cupbearer would often be of great influence with the king because he's trusted. And so there's influence. He could become a personal advisor to the ruler. This is the kind of place that Nehemiah is in. So we read in chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. No, I had not been sad in his presence. This morning we see that courageous faith acts in God's timing. When we began in chapter 1 and Nehemiah hears the bad news about Jerusalem and the mess that it's in, it is three to four months from that period of time when he begins to fast and pray until here, where we are here in chapter 2, verse 1. For three or four months he's been pouring his heart out to God Seeking God, crying out to God for what's going on in Jerusalem. He's been praying. He's been fasting. But there comes a time when a person has to act. And that's where we are now in chapter 2, verse 1. In Scripture, there's a couple of Greek words that refer to time. One is chronos, which means sequential time. It's like, like the time you look on your watch or the calendar. It's just time. Time marches on. It beats on. There's another word for time, though, that is called kairos. And kairos time is like, this is a God time, if you understand what that means. Like, this is a God moment. 
Like a time when you realize you're with someone and as you're talking, having conversation, you realize that the experiences that you have and the experiences that they have and what you shared and how God brought you together, brought you to this moment where you realize you have the opportunity now to share the hope that lies within you about Jesus Christ. There's this Kairos time that you realize, an opportunity to step into that God moment. Or like a time when before you, all of a sudden, this opportunity opens up and you realize that your life experience and the the spiritual gifting God's given you and the passions he's given you have opened up this door and it's a little scary and maybe there's some uncertainty, but it's an opportunity for you. It's this God moment for you to step into what God has for you because it's God's time for you there, now, in this moment, Kairos. Mike Breen, who's written a book called Building a Discipling Culture, says this. He says, Kairos is when the eternal God breaks into your circumstances with an event that gathers some loose ends of your life and knots them together in his hands. This is what we are brought to in this moment in Nehemiah's life. And other than him being a cupbearer and he's a Jew, we don't know that much about him. We don't know how he got to this place and of such strategic position. We don't know what he thought about it. We don't know how often he thought about God, what, what's going on in my life and with my people? Have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten us? Why am I here? What are you doing just day after day? Cupbearer, have you forgotten me? Because that's where we go, isn't it? When, when we don't see anything in the visible right in the moment, that's where we go with our mind. Like, I'm just a mom, Lord. I, I seem to be doing this every day, and, and I just, I don't see you. I don't know. I don't, can't find where you're working or my job. Like, there's just, it just seems so mundane. It's day after day, week after week, month after month, or my, my schooling. I, I just go through this, and I'm tired of it. And God, where are you? In all of this, don't think that God doesn't care or that he hasn't been working in the silence, in the stillness, in the quiet, or when you can't observe him doing something dramatic. Don't short-circuit that by bailing. As it was for Nehemiah, it will be for you. As, As you pray, as you're faithful, as you continue, there will come this moment, this kairos, this God time, when you can see all these things of your past and some of the mundaneness all come together in a moment where you can see God's been working all the time and now in front of me is this moment for me to walk into Kairos, God's timing. Nehemiah has been serving, he's been faithful, he's been prayerful and now it arrives, this moment in time. Verse two. And the king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick. There's debate as to whether Nehemiah had just inadvertently let his guard down. You know, he's been masking the true sadness of his soul before the king because a cupbearer wasn't supposed to be gloomy. He's supposed to be happy, keep the king happy. I tend to side with those who think that Nehemiah did this deliberately. In chapter one, we see how Nehemiah had prayed, grant me success today. Mercy in the sight of this man. It sounds like he had prayed and intentionally he knew this was the time. The time had come. He knew in his time of communion and prayer with God, the time had come. Now was the time. And so he acts. The king says to him, this is nothing but sadness of the heart. 
And Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. In this Kairos time, this God moment, courageous faith risks. See, in those God moments, it's not that they won't be fearful. It's not that they won't be scary. It's not that they won't be difficult. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's what we do with that fear or who we fear or what we fear most. Nehemiah has already prayed, we delight to fear in your name, O God. Nehemiah has every reason as he looks at the Torah to fear if this conversation does not go well. There's a story in the book of Genesis, you're probably familiar with it, how Joseph has been put into prison and while he's there, he's joined with uh, two of the king's servants. One is a cupbearer, one is the baker. And while he's there, God gives Joseph a dream and Joseph gives the dream to these two men, but he realizes in, in the dream, it's pretty clear, the one is going to be restored to his position. The cupbearer will be restored to his position, but the baker, not so much. See, a king had so much power, or a, or a pharaoh or a ruler had so much power, they could do what they want. How would this conversation go with the king for Nehemiah? A little more background on King Artaxerxes. He ruled from 464 B.C. to 423 B.C. This exchange with Nehemiah happens in the middle somewhere of his reign. And before we get there, right at the beginning of his reign, uh, King Artaxerxes has already experienced revolts and rebellions against himself. His own brother rebelled against him in the early part of his reign. And then later in in 460, the Egyptians revolted against him, supported by the Greeks. He had to put that down. And then just three years, about three years before this conversation with Nehemiah, one of the provincial governors has revolted against King Artaxerxes. You You can see how he would be very suspicious of anything around you. And there's another plot twist to this story that we discover in Ezra chapter four. So remember, the the Jews had been allowed to go back to their homeland and under Zerubbabel's leadership, rebuild the temple. And during that time, it appears they not only rebuilt the temple, but they also started to begin to work on the wall. And as they did that, their adversaries did not like that. They didn't want to see the Jews rebuild. And so they wrote a letter to the king. And it went something like this. Now be it known to the king that if this city, speaking of Jerusalem, is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send you and inform the king. In order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. So the king indeed commands a search, and he finds out that what they're telling him seems to be true. And the king says this in verse 19 of Ezra chapter 4, I made a decree and a search has been made and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings 
and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river. Like when this city did well, it ruled over the provinces. It would have ruled over my territory. Threat. Verse 21, therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So you understand what's happening here. Not only is the king familiar with revolt, but the very city that Nehemiah is concerned about in the rebuilding of its walls, the king himself has previously stopped the work in that city. And Nehemiah is going to make a request of him that he change his mind. Do you see how risky this is? Courageous faith risks. But courageous faith is also wise. We read this in verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Nehemiah used a lot of wisdom. He never mentioned the name Jerusalem. What he did was he found a common, a common place of ground with the king. You see, the, the Persians were very respectful of their ancestors. Their grade sites were considered sacred. Nehemiah makes no mention of Jerusalem, but the fact that it's his father's graves that are in disrepair, that, that his city of his father's graves has been broken down. He makes his request on that place of common ground. This is wisdom, but it's also wisdom that risks then the king said to me in verse 4, what are you questioning? So I prayed to the God of heaven. The king's question here, I think, is a further sign to Nehemiah that God is at work, that this is his kairos time. This is the God moment. Nehemiah understands now how he answers this question. This is that sort of moment of decision. You know that place where you realize there's an opportunity, that God moment, and your heart is beating, and you have to take courage in this moment to step into what is going to happen. Nehemiah has this moment to step into the possibility of the favor of God, of God answering his prayer in the affirmative, but at the same time risking whether his very neck will be severed from his head. The time is now. What will he do? That's how it is sometimes with those God moments. There's this window of opportunity and windows of opportunity open and then they close. In the, uh, in the Torah, in the, in, in the book of Genesis, Nehemiah probably would also have been familiar with this story of Abraham's servant when, when Abraham is on in his age and he's looking for a wife for his son Isaac, he wants that wife to come from his people. And so he sends his servant to go back to, to the land where his family is. And, and when his servant gets there, he can see that God's granted him favor because he runs into um, Abraham's relatives and he discovers the woman that has been exactly according to his request to God and she seems favorable and the family seems favorable. Uh, she's going to go back with the servant and she'll become Isaac's wife but, and the servant's going to take her back but then there's this request can, she, can, you, can you just hang around for 10 days? Before you go back, just hang around for 10 days. 
Well, you know what could have happened in that 10 days. You start to think about the consequences of leaving your family. You get, you know, should I really do this? Like there, was, well, there would have been all kinds of opportunity not to follow through on how God had answered this God moment, this prayer. And the servant says, no, now is the time. And he takes Rebecca back to Isaac. I can look at my own life and see those moments when God opens a window of opportunity and when I've stepped into it and those times when I've been disobedient, not had the courage, not stepped into it, and then the window closes. I love our, our global missions agency, MB Mission, and one of their phrases is risk-taking obedience. You see, at some point, we have to take courage and we have to step out and step into things God's calling us to. Nehemiah breathes a prayer. I love that, how how just real this story is. Nehemiah breathes a prayer. The king asks him the question. He he knows his heart's beating. He's, He's got this opportunity, but he just quickly sends up a prayer. You ever do that in a moment? You know, this moment of, 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 crisis or opportunity and, and yeah, and God, I need your help. We call that the pastoral prayer. Have you heard of it? God help. In those moments when you're asked to be the wise one or have the answer or God help because we don't so often. Nehemiah enters into this. He says a prayer and then he steps. Verse five, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Let's remind ourselves what this would mean for Nehemiah. So Nehemiah has grown up in this region. He hasn't grown up in Judah. He's grown up in where they were exiled to Babylon. That's where his friends would be. That's where his family would most likely be. He's in a fairly prestigious position. But he's not in it for personal comfort and gain. He's in it for God's glory and the well-being of his people. And he's willing to give all that up for what God has put on his heart. This, This passion, this desire to see things made right for his people. Verse six, and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. Not only does courageous faith risks, but it also plans. There's this, there's this dual side to it. It's not, it's not taking risks without methodical or strategic thinking. When, when the king asks him, Nehemiah has a time in mind that it will take and he has some requests in mind that he can specifically ask because he's been planning this. He's been thinking about it. If God would so choose to give him favor in this, we read in verse seven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. He wants protection. Verse 8, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. He wants provision. I love this. In his courageous faith, Nehemiah has faith that God can do more. He can do more. When the king says you can go, 
Nehemiah really goes for it, and he asks the king for more. I call it the big ask. I have a son-in-law who is quite amazing this way, and I've got his permission to talk about this. So um, he's the kind of guy that asks for, he'll just ask for things. So we'll go to a restaurant or a store or whatever, and he'll just ask, like, do you have a two-for-one today? Is this free today? He'll ask again sometimes, are you sure this isn't a two-for-one today? Sometimes he just embarrasses us. But the crazy thing is, guess what? Sometimes he gets, gets what he asks for. I love it. I love his faith. I love his audacity. Nehemiah believes God in this, and he asks largely. How, how, how many times do we settle for so little when God has so much more for us because we're not willing to believe, not willing to ask for more? And you see, when I believe when your concern is for God's glory and your concern is for the well-being of God's people, you're in that sweet spot of God's desire and you can ask. We can believe for more. Courageous faith is faith to believe God for more. It's also particular. Courageous faith is particular. Where do we get this from? When you read Ezra and Nehemiah together, you, you realize two leaders that are quite different in their leadership, they operate differently, think differently. Ezra, when he talked about going back to Jerusalem, he, he doesn't ask for any protection from the king because he's told him, you know, like, God is our provider, protector, God will look after us. And so in his mind, he'd be embarrassed to ask the king for any sort of protection on the way. Nehemiah is completely different. Write a letter. Make sure we can get there safely. Write a letter for provisions. Is one right or wrong? No, they're just different. They're particular. George Mueller was a person who um, existed around uh, 1800, in the 1800s, that century. He began to be moved about the plight of displaced children in his country in England. At the time, only there's like only 3,000 of the displaced kids were looked after. And so uh, he, he built about five, or- five orphanages, five large orphanages in his time. Had a huge impact on his country. Um, but the way he operated was he, he never asked for money. And most of his ministry life, he never took a salary or anything. And sometimes people look at that as a model of ministry and, and say to those of, uh, who are sent out on the foreign field or whatever, or even pastors, like, you know, you shouldn't be paid. You should just believe God and people will bring it to your door. Or if you're running an organization, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't ask for anything. But you see, that, that was George Mueller's particular courageous faith the way he operated in his way in his time, you can't place that on, one and on another person just like you can't place Ezra's mode on Nehemiah. It's particular. Courageous faith is particular. It's particular in our place of what, what we call holy discontent. Some of us are way more moved by certain messes in our world than others because God's wired you that way and you've had experiences in that area and so you're moved by that. You have a holy discontent in a particular area and how that will work itself out in you is also particular. It's not same, same for everybody. And as we look at the history, even in the last couple of hundred years of people who are moved by the mess, you know, they, it's particular, but it makes a difference because 
They believe in God and they allow God to work through them in courageous faith. William Wilberforce, when, when his, his passion to see this uh, slavery abolished, Elizabeth Fry and her desire to see the, the people in prison treated humanely, Martin, King, Martin Luther King Jr. and his desire to see racism done away with, holy discontent. What is yours? What is it about the messiness in our world that moves you with passion? You just, you're wired to, to do something about it. Nehemiah was moved about the passion of his people in Jerusalem. But he is the most unlikely candidate to go and fix it. See, re the rebuilding of a wall was usually done by a king or someone in the highest position. Nehemiah? There's lots of reasons not to risk. Who am I? There's lots of reasons not to go. It's been tried before. Can you see sometimes how we think, what we say in our head? It's been tried before. Who am I? And yet you have this holy, discontent, passion. And God gives you this opportunity to step into, to make a difference for his glory, the well-being of his people, and the flourishing of our world. Courageous faith steps into God's favor. Nehemiah is able to say at the end of this brief passage, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. God is pleased with faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it encourages us to believe God with faith and it lays out there all these Old Testament stories of people who had faith. And sometimes their story turned out really, really good, like it, it appears to be going for Nehemiah, but sometimes it, it didn't. But what mattered was that their faith pleased God in their courage. Because ultimately, our courageous faith is not in who we are or what we can do. It expresses something towards God. It is a faith in God that we believe in him. We are telling God, we, I, believe in you. In the end, it's always about who God is and what God can do. This is why Nehemiah prays. This is why Nehemiah fasts. This is why Nehemiah takes courage and steps into the opportunity, even though he may be killed for it. It's because it's all about God. And because it's about God, this is why the impossible can become possible, why the improbable happens. We are told in the New Testament that these things that are written in the Old Testament are for our example and for our encouragement that we might have hope. Nehemiah believes in a covenant-keeping God who is steadfast in his love, but he existed under the old covenant. How much more for those of us who live in the new covenant, who live after the cross, the, the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension, how much more who now live in this new covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ, how much more should we have courage? Because we've seen how much God is for us in his Son, and we've seen and we know about the provision of God that he's poured out his Holy Spirit on his new covenant church, the spirit that empowers us and leads us and moves and works through us. How much more should we be a people of courageous faith as New Testament believers? 
Romans 8.31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I don't know where you're at today. I don't, I don't know what circumstance you're in. I don't know if you're facing fear or if you're, you're facing a great opportunity right now. I don't know what your greatest goal in life is. I just know I believe God wants each of our lives to make a difference for his kingdom. George Mueller, when he started these orphanages, probably never, never could imagine how God was going to use him to have impact in England. You see, he, he personally touched 10,000 orphans in his lifetime, but because he so inspired other people, they say by the end of that, that century, 100,000 orphans were taken care of because he started something with courageous faith, and it multiplied God writes beautiful stories. But in those stories, there is conflict. There are plot twists. There are difficulties. That's what, that's what makes the story so great. But because of those things, it's, and maybe in those things the most, we have the opportunity to please God with faith, with courageous faith. And as we do, God will write a story. He'll write a story in your life that multiplies faith in others, that results in God's people doing well and in our world being touched to flourish. I want to encourage us to embrace the uncertainty, to face the fear, and with courage believe in God because greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. Courageous faith. I want to pray for us. God, we just want to say this morning that the more we look at you, the more we look at your word, the more that we see who you are and what you've done for us, Lord, the more we just want to believe in you and we want to love you and we want to worship you and we want to live lives well. Thank you, Lord, for the provision that you've given us as New Testament believers, Lord, your Holy Spirit. And I want to pray that for in each one of us in our lives, Lord, that you would help us and point us back to that place, Lord, that what really matters to us is your glory and the well-being of your people and the flourishing of our world. And Lord, to know that in that you will work in and through us and in that we will find great joy and great satisfaction. May God be praised in Jesus' name. Amen.